Hear the word of God from 1 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6. And you can follow along on the screen or in your own Bible. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 5. I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you, something that even pagans don't do. I am told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. You are so proud of yourselves, but you should be in mourning and sorrow and shame. And you should remove this man from your fellowship. Even though I am not with you in person, I am with you in the spirit. And as though I were there, I have already passed judgment on this man in the name of the Lord Jesus. You must call a meeting of the church. I will be present with you in spirit, and so will the power of our Lord Jesus. Then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. Your boasting about this is terrible. Don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. Then you'll be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you really are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So let us celebrate the festival, not with the old bread of wickedness and evil, but with the new bread of sincerity and truth. And when I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. You would have to leave this world and to, to avoid people like that. I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, but as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. When one of you has the dispute with another believer, how dare you file a lawsuit and ask a secular court to decide the matter instead of taking it to other believers? Don't you realize that someday we believers will judge the world? And since you are going to judge the world, can't you decide even these little things among yourselves? Don't you realize that we will judge angels? So you should surely be able to resolve ordinary disputes in this life. If you have legal disputes about such matters, why go to outside judges who are not respected by the church? I am saying this to shame you. Isn't there anyone in all the church who is wise enough to decide these issues? But instead, one believer sues another right in front of unbelievers. Even to have such lawsuits with one another is a defeat for you. Why not just accept the injustice and leave it at that? Why not let yourselves be cheated? Instead, you yourselves are the ones who do wrong and cheat even your fellow believers. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who practice or sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say, food was made for the stomach and stomach for the food. And this is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord. And the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say the two are united into one but the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God has bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, David. Well, long passage, a lot of meat, a lot of good stuff. I'm Danny. I'm one of the pastors here at Waypoint. And uh, I do have a disclaimer. If you have young children in the sermon, I don't really see many, but if you maybe sixth grade, under sixth grade, some of the content. I'm going to address some of the stuff. I'm not going to address all of it, so we'd be here all day, but I am going to address this, this topic of sexual ethics. So if, if there's anybody here and you'd like to remove your children, uh, now, now would be a good time. I'd say six, youth, youth age should be able to handle this, and parents, you can process this sermon with them afterward. Uh, for those of you playing Waypoint Bingo, there's a handout. There's a long passage, so you know I'm preaching. Somebody saw the handout this morning, and they're like, oh, Danny must be preaching today. So uh, this is actually the same handout we have for all our small group leaders that uh, our First Corinthians study is based on. But I wanted everyone to have a chance to have one. So if you, if you don't have one, Eric, can you just raise your hand and Eric will pass one to you. Take one per couple. Um, so Lawrence is out of town, our, pa- our senior pastor, and he... He always leaves me with the fun ones. I know I say that as a joke, but this is, but next week's also is a similar theme, so I can't say he just left me with this one. He, he is enjoying some time with his family. So I'm glad to preach the word to you this morning and um, just want to hear God speak to us. Now, I, I had David read the whole passage and I had him read it in the New Living Translation because I feel like this passage almost preaches itself. It doesn't necessarily need a lot of, I mean, you, you can really glean a lot from it, just reading it in English, hearing, hearing how, it, how Paul addresses their issues. So what I want to do for this morning is I want to answer five questions. So I'm going to just, this gives you a, this tells you where we're going. So the first question we're going to answer is what's going on? Like what's going on in the church? The second one is what are the issues in the church in Corinth that Paul is addressing? The third thing is why is Paul addressing them here? Why does Paul choose to address them in, in chapters five and chapter six. The fourth question is, what does Paul ask them to do in light of these issues? And the, and the final question is, what does this mean for us today? So this is where we're headed. So um, let's go. So what's going on? So to start this morning, I wanna give you two illustrations that will set the stage for how I'll teach this passage and give us some clues on what's going on. The first one is, is 
an image of the city of Corinth. I know Lawrence did an introduction to Corinth about four weeks ago when we started this series. So if you haven't listened to the introduction sermon, it's on our podcast or on our website. You, you can go back and listen to that. Uh, but here's two commentators uh, assessment of Corinth at the time of, of the early church. The city to which Paul came preaching the gospel, Corinth, was then a very cosmopolitan place. It was an important city. It was, an intellectual, it was intellectually alert, materially prosperous, but morally corrupt. There was a pronounced tendency for its inhabitants to indulge their desires of whatever sort. This is another commentator's assessment. The ideal of the Corinthian, the person from Corinthian, was the reckless development of the individual, the merchant who made his gain by all and every means, the man of pleasure surrounding himself with every lust, the athlete sealed the athlete steeled to every, every bodily exercise and proud in his physical strength are the true Corinthian types. In a word, the man who recognizes no superior and no law but his own desires. So that's a person in Corinth. And I would argue that that lines up a lot with some of our modern cultures and, and some of our cities and, and maybe even our city. Um, this person who just seeks their own pleasure, they're going to do everything they can to get their own pleasure. So that's a man of Corinth. And I think sometimes we as modern people think we've got it worse now. Like right now is the worst time for us as Christians. Like how can the gospel penetrate our culture? And I would argue the, the amazing thing is the gospel penetrated that culture. And the gospel's penetrated many, many cultures through, throughout time. And the gospel can and will be proclaimed in every culture no matter what the issues they're dealing with. So that's, that's a little background of Corinthians and what the person from Corinth is like. So Paul plants a church in this Greco-Roman city, and that's, that's the nature of, that's, that's what they're up against as a people. Probably half the congregation is, is maybe Jewish, uh, Jewish background, and half is just Gentile converts who joined the church and converted, meaning they would have been part of that uh, Greco-Roman lifestyle before they became believers. The second image I want you to have in your mind is, is, this is kind of a fun one. So how many of you have ever sat in a, like, a Starbucks or somewhere and someone is on the phone having a conversation with someone else and they're so loud and it's such an, you just listen to it, but you're only getting half of it. Or some of you are at your own home and something important happens, like your mom calls and your sister's talking to your mom or, and the, there's just details, but you're only hearing half of it. You're not hearing the other side. Well, most of the New Testament letters, that's kind of what we have. The, the church had an issue or a problem, and they, they, they sent a letter, or, they, or Paul, or Peter, or John heard about it, and then the letter we have is the response to it. So sometimes we're only getting half the conversation. But in this passage, Paul actually, we're lucky, Paul tells us what the other side of the phone call was. We know that the Corinthians wrote a letter to him, probably multiple letters. And we also know that because Paul traveled and people traveled, Paul would have known, he, he planted this church. He would have known what's going on, but he wasn't with them. So sometimes in New Testament letters, we only get that half of it. So we're, we can make wise decisions. We can make solid guesses and scholars help us in this. And, and we can use other parts of the Bible to, to, to pretty much know what why the author is bringing that issue up and how that we can apply that into our own lives today and what it meant for them originally. Every once in a while, we can't. There's a passage where Paul says, I went up into the third heaven. We don't get the other side. I'm, I'm not trying to scare you or anything, but so, so we don't speculate what that is because we don't know. We don't know what Paul's thorn in his flesh is. 
Like, we don't know exactly. We can guess, but we, did, we didn't have the other side of the phone call. You know, we only had that side. So, but the beautiful thing about these New Testament letters is they're God's word for us. And God, I believe they're perfect. So even though sometimes we, they might be frustrated, we might be frustrated that Paul just doesn't lay out everything we're supposed to do. There's no 3rd Corinthians, 4th Corinthians, 5th Corinthians. As someone who's engaged internationally, engaged in other cultures, I believe that part of this allows the gospel to go into any culture, any context, at any time, and you always stick to the core message of the gospel, not just a list of rules. We got to do this, we got to do this, we got to do this. So I, I personally believe there's a beauty in the way God's given us his word, and it, it is perfect. So this passage this morning, we, we actually get both sides of the conversation. Paul tells us what he's addressing. So those are the two pictures I want to paint. I wish I could tell some stories. You know, in a sermon, you're supposed to tell stories, but I want to tell you stories about people in sexual situations or whatever. So there's not going to be a whole lot of illustrations that link to this passage today. I don't know anybody who's sleeping with their stepfather or whatever, you know, stepmother. So I say that as a joke, but I, 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 I want to just prepare you for, for where we're headed. So what are the issues? So you got your hand out, and if you're... This is actually where we're headed as Waypoint uh, through December. We'll, we'll start it. We're, we're trying to teach through 1 Corinthians. I took this outline from uh, the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible. Excellent Bible if you, if you need a study Bible. Uh, and it's based on the NIV, so it uses the NIV subheadings. But uh, you can, you can kind of see the colors represent Paul addressing different things. So Paul spends a little bit of time talking about their disunity, their division. And that's what Pastor Lawrence has preached on the past three Sundays. And then if you look at this week, it's Roman numeral three, ethical confusion in the church. And the first one is dealing with the, the case of incest. The, the second one is lawsuits among believers. And the third one is just kind of an introduction to sexual immorality. Next week, we'll look at marriage and celibacy, kind of marriage and singleness in the church. And, and Paul shifts to more issues related to lifestyle. So you, you can see where we're going. You can see how Paul's addressing them. But notice that this is the first, after Paul says, you guys are disunified, you need to be unified in Christ. And he, he gives them later on what it means to be the body in, in chapters 12 and 13 and 14. But he tells them they're disunified. And then he says, okay, now I'm going to start the checklist. I'm going to start addressing the problems. And he addresses the first one. And the, I don't like the NIV subheading as much. The ESV and the NLT say uh, dealing with spiritual pride. They focus, and, and really, that's where Paul starts. He starts with dealing with spiritual pride. So why is he addressing this now? Because I think he's addressing it, addressing it in the priority he wants to. He's addressing, firstly, this situation of spiritual pride and this, this man who's, uh, you know, living sleeping with his stepmom, and I'll explain that a little bit. Um, and then, then they have these lawsuits among each other. So, so Paul is directly, he feels like this is important, so he, he addresses this first. And then he goes into some other issues that they've, they've been struggling with. All right, so what does Paul ask them to do? So now we're into the meat of the sermon already. So I'm just going to kind of walk through the passage. What is he asking them to do? The first thing Paul does is tell them to stop the spiritual pride. To stop boasting in it. Let me grab some water. Um, this is chapter 5, verse 1. I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you, something even pagans don't do. So the pagans in this society, the, the Greco-Roman people, 
had a very low standard of sexual ethics. The Corinth itself had over, uh, thousand, they had thousands of temple prostitutes. Actually, there's the temple of Aphrodite. When they, had, when they needed to pray for rain or something, they brought the prostitutes to pray. It was definitely not a city of, of purity. So if they're doing something that even their pagan neighbors would be shocked by, Paul, Paul's kind of just trying to really call them out on their spiritual pride. It's interesting that he's calling them, the church, more out on their spiritual pride than he is on calling the man out on what he's doing. Um, and we're assuming that the stepmom, almost all the commentaries think the stepmother is not a believer because he would have called her out too. But he definitely thinks this man is responsible, but he's also concerned about the way the church is handling it. He says, you're so proud of yourselves in verse 2, but you should be mourning in sorrow and shame. And then in, in verse 6, he jumps to, your boasting about this is terrible. Don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? And he's, he's actually bringing them back to an illustration from the Old Testament about the Passover and, you know, how a little bit of yeast makes the dough rise. You take the yeast out and the, and the bread's flat. And, and he says, just a little bit of sin can really corrupt things. And it might be easy to look at this as an extreme case. A man sleeping with his stepmom. Most commentators would assume that his father's dead at this point. Uh, and it might be easy to look at this extreme case and think of how could they have spiritual pride on this crazy issue. And, you know, but they did because Paul's very upset and he's definitely dealing with it. And then, it, of course, we might think our ch present church would never fall into the same type of spiritual pride. Uh, that, that blinded them. But I think whenever there's an issue in the church, somewhere else, or in the, in the text, when we read an issue, there, Satan has a strategy, and sin always can creep in, and we may be just doing a different version of the same thing. It's not like, oh, it's, they just have that. If, 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 it's a way that, that just, if it's a way that Satan works to destroy the church at some other place, the strategy might be trying to be used on us, too. So, uh, New Testament scholar Richard Hayes wrote a commentary on this, on 1 Corinthians, and this is what he says on this particular passage as a warning to us as the modern church. I'm going to put it up on the screen. In our time too, so now, we have within the church people claiming that their newly attained enlightenment or wisdom sets them free precisely as Christians to disregard the teachings of scriptures and tradition on moral issues, and not just sexual conduct, but other matters as well, such as possessions and the use of violence. They boast in their liberated transgression of what they regard as old-fashioned norms. So Hayes, who studied, you know, spent a lot of his life studying the New Testament, feels that a, a modern parallel to what they're doing is they, they took their freedom and allowed this to happen. And, and later on in the, in the book, we'll actually talk about freedom, free, freedom we have in Christ and how do we how idols and freedom work together. Those will be our Sermon 7 and Sermon 8 in the series. But what are the things that we're doing? You know, so the local church, we always need to ask ourselves, what are we sinfully boasting about? This is, this is something that I believe that Paul wants us to deal with in this passage. So we as pastors, we as elders, we as ministry leaders, and you guys as the congregation, this is, this is something we can always go back to. The next thing Paul asked the Romans to do is to remove the man. Uh, he says, and you should remove this man from your fellowship, even though I'm not with you in person, I'm with you in spirit. Uh, and then in verse 5, that you must throw the man out and hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself, he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. 
And this type of discipline is an action of love. It's an action of love to help the man really deal with his sin and to help the local church continue to grow in holiness and Christ-likeness. The goal of the discipline is to allow the man to recognize his sinful actions, repent, and then the church restores the man to their fellowship. This happens all the time. Guys get kicked off the team, right? Guys get suspended for, you know, I'm a sports guy. I have to have a college football reference, so Lawrence's team... For bingo, Lawrence's team, the Gators, beat my Tigers last night, and you know now they have this new penalty. Now it's in, in football. You know if if you if you lead with the crown of your head, you get kicked out of that game. You know, and and the the discipline is for a purpose. They want to have less concussions. So the church isn't the only place where this type of discipline happens. As a parent, I'll you know ask I'll discipline my children in hopes of restoration. I'm not doing it just because I I'm doing it because I love them. And that, that's the type of discipline that Paul is commanding to the, the church here. The goal of the discipline is to allow the man to recognize his sinful actions, and hopefully he repents and he's restored. And that's, Paul says, you know, he'll be saved. He can come back. Paul's not saying this man is doomed. He's just saying, but the church needs to, to do what's right. The next thing Paul reminds us of is to know how to treat those who are outside the church. And this is interesting. He said, when I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin, who are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. Notice that sexual sin, greedy, cheat people, worship idols. I grew up in a church, and some of you may have, and hopefully, sometimes the church focuses heavily on the sexual sin, but then people in the church congregation are extremely greedy. Uh, they have all kinds of idols. They cheat people. They own small businesses where they're cheating people left and right, but they're not committing sexual sin, so they must be okay with God. And, and I, I feel like Paul wants us to remove all the idols. And, and I think that's why he lists all these things together. He's, but he's also, the point of this section is he's like, we need to know how to treat those outside the church, and we can't expect them to have a Christian ethic. We need to love them and bring them in and, and show them why God's way is better. They're not going to just walk in the door and, be, and understand the Christian ethic, understand the, the ways of living like Jesus. They might understand a few of them. And too many times in our churches, we expect people to kind of look like us and smell like us and sound like us before they'll let the, we'll let them in. And I would argue that's kind of the opposite of what the early church did. They let them in, and then they, they just said, Jesus Christ is Lord. He came to save you. And when the person fell on their face and said, I believe he is Lord and I need to be saved, then they slowly showed them how the world's ethic and the ways of the world are not the way, right way to live. And they taught them how to walk. They walked them along a path of discipleship so that they would say no to these things too. Now, this is messy. It'd be much easier to just find the people who have it all together and let them join our church. It would. Let's... let's when I was in a fraternity in college and other groups, and when they recruit, they don't recruit, you kind of recruit the, good, the people who are already like you. So they can just kind of plug right in. The country club doesn't recruit the guy who doesn't know how to play golf. He's a mess. He's going to complain all the time and try to get the, the golf course to be turned into a land development. They would not let that guy join their club, right? They, were, they want the guy who loves golf, who's rich, and who will just keep pumping money into whatever the country club is. They, every group wants to recruit people Every group but the church generally wants to recruit people who are already like them. We want to recruit everybody because everybody needs the good news of the gospel. So, 
This is, this is kind of what Paul's getting at here. He's like, don't, don't mix the two together. But then Paul is stern about know how to treat those inside the church who are com- continuing in unrepentant sin. Unrepentant sin. And this is people who are doing it and they're not even ashamed of it. And there's a difference between someone struggling with sin and they're, they're sharing it with the guys in their small group or the girls in their small group. They're, they're trying. They're, they're st- all of us are struggling with sin. And if you think you're not, you're struggling with the sin of pride. So just to let you know. So, so it's not saying that, yes, if, if it was just down to none of us ever had greed or cheated people or anything, that, yes, then we would all have to just, just leave the church. This is saying those who are like, I'm not even trying. I don't even care. I don't even think it's wrong. So there is a way for us as the church to deal with this. So, so I, I think Paul briefly addresses this, but I think it was important to mention both. Um, Next thing Paul tells them, keep disagreements inside the body. And this is the passage about lawsuits. So we're done talking about the man and his stepmom. Um, now, we're, now we're talking about lawsuits. And, and this one's interesting. So they are a new church founded by Paul. So how many of you, I mean, sometimes you hear people are like, oh, if we could just get back to the early church, just get back to the church in Acts, everything would be okay. And I'm like, they had problems, we have problems, you know, like they're suing each other and they're, they're, they're trying to settle their arguments in a Roman court. At least our courts now in America are based on, you know, Judeo-Christian principles. So what happens in our church? I mean, a lot of the same principles might happen in the courts. The Roman courts were absolutely nothing like the Christ-like ethic, like zero. They might have had a few overlaps, but the way that they thought about the world, like I told you, in Corinth, the main temple was to Aphrodite, was a prostitute temple. That's how the Romans, that was their worldview. That's what, that's what they thought was important. So why in the world would the church that Paul started, would they have a disagreement, they can't even disagree, and they'd go to the civil court versus asking God how to resolve it together amongst themselves. Um, and then there's this fascinating passage where it talks about how we should be able to judge. We're going to even judge angels. And most commentators believe, and this is the final judgment when those angels who have rebelled against God, um, and that's that's probably what Paul's referring to, and that we get to reign with Christ. So this judging that we get to do is us reigning with Christ. So he's like, you know, you guys should be the preview of the kingdom, as Pastor Lawrence always says. You guys, these, these, these other people around you in Corinth, they need the light of the gospel. If they just see you as a bunch of bickering people who can't, get along what attractiveness is in the gospel is there it's not any better than what they have you should be the people who learn how to get along together and then then he says this paul says that god has given the church everything we need to make proper judgments and i do want to i want to make one disclaimer on this so recently the me too movement and stuff has shown a lot of sin and darkness and evil in our world but it's also simultaneously brought out a lot in the church. And some evil people in the church have used passages like this to, to cover stuff up. And I'm telling you today, wait, we believe that's wrong, that's evil, and that's contrary to every part of Scripture. So it's okay to go to this. If, you, if anybody at Waypoint does something illegal, go to the legal authorities. If I do something illegal, send me to jail. That, that's our stance. This passage is talking more about bickering, misunderstanding, carpet color. I don't like the way you did this or that. 
part of why we have elders here at Waypoint is, is so that the elders can invest three years of their lives and, and just be fasting and praying to deal with some of this stuff so that we don't have to have a congregational meeting every time two people are in a disagreement. And pray for our elders because they, they put in a lot of work, a lot of hours to, to, to run this congregation so that we, we can be a people who, don't, who, who settle our disputes. Whenever we make a vote as elders, it has to be all, every person has to agree on it. Um, we, we can't have a vote where there's, you know, like the Supreme Court, where there's three and two, and there's the dissenters, and the dissenters write a, well, I didn't agree with it. We just say either we're in all in agreement or we're, or we're just going to table it till next meeting because we, we want to be unified. We're trying. Uh, so, but Paul brings this up because he's like, what would it really mean to be humble? And I love the end of this passage. He says he's in verse 5, I'm saying this to shame you. Isn't there anyone in all the church who is wise enough to decide on these issues? Like they have to go to the civil court. They can't, find, they can't resolve it among their, their, themselves. But instead, one believer sues another right in front of unbelievers. And I love this part in verse 7. It says, even to hatch, have such lawsuits with one another is a defeat for you. Why not just accept the injustice and leave it at that? Why not let yourselves be cheated? There's a, one of my favorite passages in the Bible is in Philippians 2, where it talks about the humility of Christ. If it, I, I once read a, a thing by a famous pastor. He was in his 80s. He kind of wrote a book to other pastors. And he said at any meeting they ever had, if, if people started arguing and bickering, he was Baptist, so they had a lot of meetings, and, you know, a lot of bickering. <laughs> Methodists and Presbyterians have it too. Baptists just have, more, have them more often or in, in bigger groups. He said any time he would just ask his congregation to all pull up the Pew Bible so they're all reading the same translation and read the first part of Philippians 2 together. And then after that, if they still want to yell and scream at each other, that's fine. But at least, at least let's look at what God tells us to imitate the humility of Christ. If you read the, the Beatitudes, sometimes... The misunderstanding of the disagreement, you may just have to leave it with God and trust Him. The church isn't a place where you're always going to get to be right and have your say all the time, unfortunately, because we have a lot of different opinions. We're just trying to build Christ's kingdom. Now, don't let your leaders or people get away with evil and sin. Paul tells us not to let sin creep into our church, to get rid of it. But at the same time, if it's personality differences, misunderstandings, just issues like that, it's, it's okay to have a misunderstanding and to be misunderstood. Our leader was very misunderstood. And he spoke when, he was, when the Father told him to speak. Jesus spoke when the Father told him to speak. And he was quiet when he didn't. He could have rained down an army of angels and destroyed the Roman Empire right there at the, at the crucifixion. But he was honoring the Father's will. So sometimes as God's people... We might need to just let ourselves be, he says cheated. I'm just saying, just let yourself be misunderstood. And this goes for us as leaders too. We're trying. We want to execute Christ-like justice in our church. But at the same time, it's hard. So trust us and we want to trust you. Next thing Paul does, he appeals back to checking your heart for sin and idols. And I would argue this is, goes back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, where Jesus says, do not judge. You know, take the speck of sawdust out of your eye and then you can you can make the wise decision. So Paul's reminding them that, to, that when you're making these judgments on, 
to, to be sure to check yourself, to be humble. Um, and then he reminds them of their washing and sanctification. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by the calling, by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He brings them back to the gospel, what God has done for them and who they are in Christ. Paul then uses strong language and illustrations to show how sex is powerful and set apart for a special marriage relationship. You know, and, and Paul goes on this long thing. He talks about, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And we'll talk about that again in a future sermon about freedom and, and, and sin and, and how, how we live as free people, but know that sin exists. Um, and then he, he says, don't you realize, this is verse 15, that your bodies are actually parts of Christ. Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scripture says, the two are united into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one in spirit with him. And I remember when I was a youth pastor, one of the youth just straight up asked me, now why can't, why is it bad for Christians to have sex outside of marriage? He's like, I'm a guy, I want to, I want to, you know, he just wanted to do what all his friends were doing. And I just said, sex is a, a precious covenant that God's given to people. And I said, before birth control and, and, you know, ready abortions, sex had an actual consequence most of the time. But now that we have, you know, efficient forms of birth control and pretty much abortion on demand, it's, it's very fast and se seemingly seamless. People don't recognize the consequence of the emotional attachment, but it's still taboo to talk about it, right? It's still taboo to, to bring it up. So, so we as Christians can trust God in this. And I remember telling this kid, I said, what if you came to the Lord's table and someone handed you the bread and the wine and you just threw it and you just chucked it? You're making a mockery of the covenant. And I would say when we have sex outside of God's intention in a marriage between a man and a woman, we're making a mockery of the covenant. Now, all of us are broken. I would argue that all of us make a mockery of this covenant. Sometimes we come to this table with bitterness in our hearts. We come to this table with unrepentant sin and things, and Christ's blood still covers us. Even this man who's sleeping with his stepmom, it still says he can be saved. He's a true believer. He can be saved on the day of the Lord. So I'm not saying that anyone who's struggled with sexual sin, and, and, and all of us have in some way or other, whether it's mentally or, or actually doing different things, it, this, this is tough, but I, I will say that we're always called to go back to God's best. And, and as I told this youth, I said, it's a covenant. It's a beautiful thing. God, it's in Genesis 1. It's the way God made us. And I, and I think C.S. Lewis and a few others have kind of alluded to that the sexual relationship is, is really the, the closest thing showing us what our true relationship with God will be restored to one day. Pure intimacy, where we can be naked before another person and not be ashamed in any way possible. And unfortunately, even in marriages, that's not true because we're still sinful people. But one day that will be true. Then Paul tells them to flee, run. And we'll talk more about this later. I mean, I really don't think there needs to be much explanation. This, this is pretty straightforward. Stay away. Trust God. God's way is better. Um, then Paul reminds them that their body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I think it's fascinating that the main way we learn about this is Paul talking about don't be united with a prostitute. 
as we learn about our union with Christ. 1 Corinthians is a fascinating letter because we learn a lot through Paul addressing these issues. A lot of our truth statements that we proclaim come from Paul claiming who they are after he's addressing real issues of sin in the church. Then Paul reminds them they were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. What an amazing, what an amazing, amazing thing to know. All right, so what does this mean for us today? Four things. Take the local church seriously. Be, part, be a part of what God is doing. And then understand that flaws and brokenness will always be a part of the church. But if we are humble and we seek first the kingdom of Jesus and his righteousness, both individually as the individual members of the church and as the local body, the Holy Spirit will work in us and through us and make us the body, the local church, the waypoint church that we were called to be. It can happen, even in the mess. It can happen. So take the local church seriously. And sometimes the church needs calls to renewal. And we need loving calls of rebuke that are intended to bring repentance and restoration. Remember the goal of the discipline Paul gave the man uh, who, was, who was sleeping with his stepmom in the church was to allow the man to recognize his sinful actions and repent. And then the church restores the man to their fellowship. That was the goal. From beginning to end, proper church discipline is an act of love toward the person being disciplined and a way to move forward as the local church. But, and this is important, remember what we just looked about about spiritual pride. That's how Paul starts it off. This is interesting. Spiritual pride in the church. Unfortunately, in most modern church discipline cases, issues of spiritual pride happen alongside the loving discipline. So like we're doing one thing Paul tells us to do while simultaneously breaking another one. So we have to be very careful. So we should not shy away from lovingly rebuking and calling for repentance, but we should always check our own hearts for pride in the process. It's gonna be messy, it's gonna be hard. There will be disagreements and friction and misunderstandings and personality problems and hurts. But the church of Jesus, the local church, and his, his church, big C, capital C, will prevail. And we get to be a part of this as we yield to the Holy Spirit. And when we get to 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, we can really see how we are a body and how we work together. Um, and we can see how God's going to make this happen. So take the local church seriously. Number two, what is this? Take sin seriously. Verse 9, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. You know, those who indulge in sexual sin, worship idols, thieves, greedy, drunkards, abusive, cheat people. The list. It's not just sexual sin. It's also, it's, Paul's trying to cover all the idols of our hearts. He's saying, if you're not struggling with one thing, something else is going to be your struggle. But all of us have these things. All of us need to check our hearts, and to ask God to continually renew us. What do you need to do? Put a block on your phone? Don't watch that show? Don't believe those lies when you compare yourself to others? Don't be greedy? Be content? Love people who don't love you back? Love your enemies? Overcome evil with good? Sin is not freedom. It's fun, 
When I was growing up in youth group, some people would like have this testimony. They're like, yeah, I used to be an alcoholic or whatever. It was terrible. But then I met a guy who was like rich and like he had a, he was a trust fund kid and his grandfather left him all this money. And he's like, no, sin was fun. It was a lot of fun. He's like, it was, it was, it was empty, but it was fun. So I'm not going to tell you today that the world's way isn't fun. You're, you could have a lot of fun, but it's bondage. It's not freedom. Freedom is only found, the creator who created us knows what freedom is. And sin is not freedom, it's bondage keeping us from God's best, keeping us from what we really need. The third one is similar, but I thought I would stress it. Take sexual sin seriously. Either we're going to trust God's wisdom about sex or the world's wisdom. We only kind of have two choices. And unfortunately, even myself, many times I'm steered this way. TV shows, every, everything on my phone the same phone that I read my Bible on can show the most graphic images ever, you know, in seconds. There's, there's a lot of darkness out there. The world wants to pull us in one way. I think like almost all the money made on the web is through pornography, like tremendous amounts. The world's ethic is, is a broken one, and God has shown us a better way. Let's be a better There's a fireplace analogy that Tim Keller often gives. He says, fires are awesome in the fireplace. Fireplace on a cold day in a cabin in the woods. Move that fire three feet to the middle of the floor, and it's a nightmare. The house burns down. You have nowhere to go. You lose everything. That's how sex is. In, the, in God's way, it's, it's good. Outside of that, it, it will burn the house down. Can we trust God in that? Take sexual sin seriously. Tell someone. Get help. Don't fight alone. Probably half of us in this room are fighting some kind of sin problem right now. Some kind of deep thing that we, we want to get rid of and we can't. The good news of the gospel is God's already forgiven us and he's given us the body. We've got to be men and women who carry each other's burdens and help each other out. So if someone shares something with you, walk them, walk them through it. And if you don't have the resources, come talk to me. If you're a female, Erica's job here at Waypoint is to help women connect and care for each other. Talk to Pastor Lawrence. Talk to your small group leader. Talk to a friend. Let's take these sins seriously and, and, and ask God for freedom from them. And next week, Pastor Lawrence is going to share a little more about sexuality, marriage, singleness, as, as 1 Corinthians introduces these, these ideas. But let's, let's be a people who pursue holiness, but build each other up and trust and, and live in God's grace and live in his forgiveness. All right, final thing, remember and rest in what Jesus has done for you and who you are in him. So I'm just going to end the sermon by reading the promises. So what Paul basically does is he says, here's the issue and here's what is true in Christ. I don't know if you've noticed that pattern throughout this. So here's the truth in Christ that Paul gives us. Um, verse five, I mean, chapter five, the end of verse seven then you will be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you really are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. You know, this is the only place in the New Testament where Christ is directly called the Passover lamb. He, we know he's the Passover lamb. He actually dies. He's, he's executed on the Passover. So Christ is our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So let us celebrate the festival, not with the old bread of wickedness and evil, but with the new bread of sincerity and truth. 
Paul tells them what they're doing wrong, but he says, this is who you are in Christ. Verse 6, 11. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is who we are. Verse 14. And God will raise us from the dead by his power just as he raised our Lord Jesus from the dead. This is our hope. Our hope isn't these sins are destroyed us, but, our, but God rose us to new life. Verse 17, but the person who is joined with the Lord is one with him in spirit. What a powerful passage. And we get this because Paul's addressing being united with the prostitute. Like the opposite of being united with the prostitute is being united with the Lord and being one with him in spirit. This is where our hope is. Don't you realize, verse 19, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. Let's pray.